0: We're going through Acts, looking at chapter 12 tonight, and tonight we're going to look at, well, really a pretty big escape. And so why don't I read this passage for us, and then we'll dig in. This is God's Word. About that time Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. Where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. And recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, You are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, It's his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, tell these, things to, to "Tell these things to James and to the brothers." And he departed and went to another place. Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries in order that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for this passage, Um, hard-to-believe passage, uh, certainly one filled with the supernatural, and we ask that you would help us to see Jesus in this passage. Um, We need you to give us eyes to see. We need you to dig out for us ears to hear, for unless you work, we won't. And so we, we ask for your help. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, so we've got quite an escape in this passage, and I love big escapes. you've ever watched movies, action flicks, sometimes the best part is the escape. Uh, the kinds where the prisoner is outnumbered, uh, chained, uh, where he's, he's really good at fighting. Uh, maybe he uses one of the guards as a human shield and takes his gun and, you know, takes out everybody else. He, he's picking locks, he's running. Scenes like this are exciting to watch. And the great escape that we're looking at tonight has so many of those elements, but not all of them. He's outnumbered and handcuffed, he's in prison, but there's no fighting, no human shields, no killing. Peter's escape probably wouldn't be as much fun to say, as fun to watch as, say, a Chuck Norris movie or contemporary sort of action flick. And what we find instead is something of God's work. We've seen a bit of persecution in Acts, but not, not too much. The, the sort of theme of persecution has almost been put on the back burner. And I say almost because we've seen it, but what's been front and center in the book of Acts is how much the gospel is actually spreading. Of course, we see opposition along the way, but it's not hindering the work of the spread of the church, the spread of the gospel. People are believing in a risen Jesus Christ left and right. The message of grace centered around the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus is changing communities. It's changing the way that people think about their money. It's changing the way that people think about their differences, their similarities. Men and women, Jews and Gentiles, the rich and the poor are all being joined to each other in this community it's easy to see easy to forget when so many people are being drawn to this jesus that so many outside are still hostile to him in the bible we see a lot of resistance we see lots of manifestations of resistance to this gospel and if you remember We look at, you know, when we look in the Gospels in the fall, we talk about who Jesus is interacting with in the Sermon on the Mount. The Pharisees play a pretty prominent role in the Gospels, pretty significant in Acts too, but you really see them in the Gospels and they oppose Jesus' message. They've taken a legalistic response to the Gospel. Jesus, you make too much of grace. You say that grace is too big. They've reduced a right relationship with God simply to doing the right things, avoiding the wrong things, hoping that the right things outweigh the bad things. And Jesus says the gospel is fundamentally different from that. It's not about doing more good things than bad things. It's not simply avoiding the wrong things and pursuing the right things. The gospel is offensive to the Pharisees simply because Jesus keeps saying... In and of yourself, you are incapable of doing what it takes to be right with God. You will never be good enough for Him. Instead, the message of the gospel that Jesus preaches is, instead, trust me that I can do for you, that I have done for you what you can never do for yourself. And when you believe that I have done that for you, that I have died for your sins, that my perfect life can be given to you, you are made right with God. You see, Christians believe that salvation has nothing to do with our human effort getting right with God and has 100% everything to do with Jesus' effort to make us right with God. And the Pharisees would say, a gospel like that will surely be abused. If it's all about God, then people will do whatever they want to do. And the message of the Bible has always been, that's simply not true. And so as misguided as the Pharisees were, at least they had a principled approach to their hostility to the gospel. Herod's approach in this passage is altogether different. His is one of convenience, His is one of seeking approval of others. And we see this in the first two verses. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. It's easy for us to sort of gloss over what is sort of staring at us in the face in this first verse. He killed James. That surely got the attention of the church. One of the first apostles, one of the leaders of the church, has been killed. God is at work in our midst. We're growing, expanding. James was just killed. That, That got their attention. Easy for us to gloss over because then we've got this whole Peter scenario, but this wouldn't have been lost on the early church. It pleased so many, though. And so Herod sees, like, well, if my approval ratings go up when I kill James, what happens when I kill, like, the top dog? Peter's the chief apostle. If I put him to death, that's got to even return even more popularity for me. And so his opposition to the church is really politically motivated. It's expedient for him to do this. And so there's a reminder for us in this passage that when we are more concerned with our kingdoms than God's kingdom, we enter into dangerous territory there's an invitation for us to examine whether or not or how much we have some of heart in us do we pursue our kingdom over against god's kingdom do we pursue our agenda over against god's agenda do we care more about popularity contest or the kingdom of god you see Herod's selfish ambition is set against the kingdom of God, even if he may have never thought about it in those terms. So the obvious difference between Peter's jailbreak and, say, Chuck Norris, Peter doesn't have mad skills on his side. He doesn't know, you know, no one's talking about how great he is. He doesn't fight fire with fire. When he's outnumbered, shackled, when the guards... Are surrounding him he's in prison he doesn't church to come and break down the door he doesn't say come and sneak in a sword he doesn't say pick the lock he doesn't say sneak in at midnight we're gonna get this rip the walls down there's nothing extravagant about what he does what we find is that the church prays for him and something miraculous happens what we find is that the prayers of the saints, the prayers of God's people, and the miracles of God triumph over Herod's oppression and opposition to the church. That's where we are in verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. I've said this before, but you really can't read the Bible. You can't read Acts and believe Acts and be a naturalist. It's impossible because what we read here, there is no natural explanation for. Luke intends for us to believe that God answered prayers by performing a series of miracles delivering Peter from prison. angel, In real miracles... And this is hard, I think, sometimes for the modern mind to read this. And then you think, actually, you know what? This would have been hard for the pre-modern mind to understand this. Like nobody would have read this a thousand years ago and thought, yeah, that checks out. That's what happened to me last week. Like nobody's read this and been like, "Eh, that's my experience. Happens to dad all the time. Angels come and kick him and say, get up. Right? Right no one has ever read this and said this is typical this makes the most sense in the world and yet we're reminded that this should not surprise us that god could or would act like this if he's the one who can create everything out of nothing do you ever have these thoughts like you're like I was walking around campus yesterday, the day before it was yesterday. It was beautiful. I was walking around campus, and I was looking at the hub, and I was looking at the the, the you know the, all the grass and the trees. Well, the grass and the trees won't really play into what I'm going to say, but I'm looking at the streets and the cars, and realizing like all of this stuff has always been on this planet. It's always been here, and and we've figured out how to dig it up and how to purify it and how to make it. Like, what, what genius God has to create a world where we can do that? And as amazing as it is to create things out of digging in the ground, the Bible says that God creates out of nothing. That there was nothing, and then there was everything. And the Bible says that Jesus Christ died, truly and really, and He was raised from the dead. We don't want to check our minds at the door. We want to be thinking people. We want to be scientific people. And yet, science cannot answer some of the most profound realities of Scripture. Where did everything come from? Where? And how can the dead live? And if, and if you're troubled by some of the things that you hear in this passage, let me just remind you and encourage you to believe If you deep down believe that it's possible for sins to be forgiven, the way they're forgiven is by the impossible reality that a dead man-god came back to life. And that same man-god performed miracles through the prayers of his people. Uh, Luke intends... For us to believe that this is literally taking place i mean he says peter actually thought this isn't happening i must be in a dream or a trance and then it was like oh it is happening he goes out of his way to make sure that he underst- that we understand his intention this is real and so where is he about to be executed you'd expect him to be awake maybe he himself is praying god deliver me but he's not he's asleep a deep trust in god's providence there i think whatever happens he's asleep and an angel kicks him strikes him up his chains fell off this is an unbelievable scene Uh, charles wesley the great hymn writer latched onto this and said this is really a picture of our salvation and i don't know if luke intended for that imagery but i think it's it's Worth pondering for a second, what Charles Wesley took out of this passage is him that we sing sometimes, listen, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night, thine eye diffused a quickening ray, I woke the dungeon flamed with light, my chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed Thee. For Peter to be delivered from prison, in this instant, it took a miracle. And what the great hymn writer is saying is that anytime anyone believes, it's the same kind of miracle. You didn't do it. And your efforts didn't do it. And the efforts of those around you didn't do it. A light shone, chains fell off, I rose and followed. We can no more escape the prison of our own sin than Peter can escape the prison of brick-and-mortar King Herod. We need a miracle of God to follow Him. We need a spiritual birth. And anytime you see faith in Jesus, a real faith, a real miracle has preceded that and enabled that. Peter teaches us in other places that God, he says... Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven, who by God's power are being guarded by faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Peter says, God causes us to be born. He keeps us in that state. Faith is God's miracle. And so this is Peter's story. He knows that to know Jesus is a work of God's deliverance. And now he experiences in a very physical way God's deliverance. The same sort of miracle. The angel strikes him. Get up. His chains fall off. He says, follow me. Verse 9, he did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. They come to a locked gate and it opens for them as if he had sort of an electric clicker, just opens of its own accord. Verse 11, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me. I'm not sure if we wanted to, we could count how many miracles took place in these like two minutes. Was it a miracle that people didn't wake up? Was it a miracle that one chain fell off, then another chain fell off? Like The point is, lots of supernatural things are just happening. God is, is, is doing this. And Peter now knows he's free, and he goes to the place that he thinks he should go, where he knows the church is gathered, where he knows people will be meeting. It's the middle of the night. Okay? And Peter shows up, the house is full. What are they doing there? They're praying for him. Their world has been rocked. Their leader is in prison. They're praying for him that somehow his life might be spared. So Peter knocks at the door. Surely this would have startled them. Is it the police? Are they after more of us? Rhoda, the servant girl, goes to the door, she discovers Peter is free. Their prayers have been answered, right? And what does she do? Does she let him in? Hug him? Hallelujah? No. Like we're supposed to sort of read this and think, Luke's being funny here. Like she's so excited that she forgets to let him in. He's banging on the door. He's here, he's here, and she doesn't open. She goes and she tells everybody, he's here. What do they say? Well, he's late. We've been praying for him. Of course he's here. No, they say, Rhonda, you're crazy. Peter's not here. He's in prison. You see the, the sort of cognitive dissonance that's taking place here? Like they're praying for one thing. It happens, but they think that's impossible. He couldn't be here. The thing we're praying for couldn't actually happen. You're crazy. Think about this: the whole town, the whole church is gathered to pray while everyone else is asleep. And so, on the one hand, it tells us they believe in prayer; they believe that God can show up; they believe that He can do something that seems impossible. They believe, and yet, when their prayer is answered, they say, "Not a chance! No way!" That's encouraging to me. I hope that's encouraging to you. Verse 16, Peter kept knocking, and when they opened, they saw him. They were amazed. This sounds like somebody who was there, by the way. Listen, but motioning to them with his hand to be silent. Don't wake up the town. Shh. He described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. God did this. God answered your prayer how do we think of prayer? Lots of thoughts come up when we think about prayer. Something we should do. If you're a Christian, then you're always thinking, I don't pray enough. I feel guilty about maybe that I don't pray or I pray for things and they don't happen or I don't believe they'll happen or how much faith am I supposed to have? There's a lot of anxiety often that's wrapped up with prayer. Or maybe you become cynical. I don't, Really believe in prayer. I don't think God's going to do anything that I ask for. Or maybe you believe in God's providence. And you're like, well, it is what it is. It's going to be what it's going to be. He's going to do it. Why should I pray? This passage reminds us that prayer is important, an important part of the Christian life. And the passage also shows us that you don't have to have giant spiritual faith to pray. You don't have to know for certain that what you're praying for is going to happen because they didn't. They absolutely didn't. So often we we idolize the early church and we think they had the faith. And and sometimes you hear that in churches and pulpits, like we've got to be more like the early church. And, And there's a place to say something like that, I suppose, but they're just like us. This was not this utopian society. They didn't have perfect faith. They get corrected all the times in the letters. They were shocked that God answered their prayer. They didn't believe it when someone told them that God had answered their prayer. Now, why were they shocked? This passage doesn't say, but I wonder. Right? I wonder. I wonder had they experienced, like many of us have experienced, praying to God for something, and it didn't go the way they wanted. I wonder what they did, what they felt when James was arrested. Did they pray for him? Probably. Please deliver our brother James. Save him from prison. I wonder if they were surprised To see Peter because they never saw James. He's dead. They're not ever going to see him again in this life. (laughs) Have you ever prayed for God to do something in your life and he didn't answer the way you wanted him to? The early church surely felt that too. Many of us have. But how many of us have also been surprised when God showed up in a way that we had asked asked him to? I prayed for this, and he did it, and no, I can't prove it, but it sure feels like God listened to me and answered me. I wonder how many of us have had experiences like that. I think we see at least three things about prayer in this passage. It's not a silver bullet. It's not the sort of trump card. Our prayers do not bind God. They do not obligate Him to say, Oh, your will be done. Sure. That they asked for it. They said the magic in Jesus' name. Boom. Right? Our prayers do not obligate God. They do not bind Him to do our wills. And yet, in His kindness, in His goodness, God does answer prayers. Not every prayer, not the way that we want. We can't see what God is doing. We know He's good and sovereign, and in His goodness, He chooses to answer some of our prayers and allow us to see that. And He did so for the early church here in miraculous fashion. The other thing we say, and I alluded to this earlier, but God is not waiting for your faith to be perfect to listen to your prayers, to answer your prayers. The church was surprised when God answered their prayer. I think this shows some vulnerability to their faith, some weakness in their faith. That's what's encouraging to me because I identify with that. So what are you discouraged for when you pray? Maybe you've got friends or family that continue to reject the gospel, and they're still spiritually very much in a prison like Peter was, and you've simply lost hope for them. And I would just remind you that the Bible is very clear that no one is too far gone, too far rebellious, too far hard-hearted for God to reach in and free them. (coughs) All faith in Jesus is a miracle, and He can change the hearts of anyone. So Don't stop praying for those you love, or maybe start praying for the ones you love. If you're like me, it's too easy to assume prayer is a good thing and say you will pray for something and tell somebody, I'm praying for this. But if you actually, when did I pray for them? Am I counting me saying I'm praying for you? Is that the prayer? That's not a guilt trip. It's just a reminder like, let's, if you're a Christian, I encourage you without guilt to pray when you say that you will pray. And to ask God to help me to want to pray. Maybe you've prayed for loved ones who are physically ill and you asked for God to heal them and He didn't. And you're jaded by that. And I know what that's like. I've I've buried a lot of family members that I prayed for that God didn't seem to really want to do what I wanted Him to do. But God still is listening to His people. D. A. Carson notes. He says, "God doesn't. He doesn't gift all of his servants with the same degree of divine intervention. He may love his people all the same, but he does not. In, he doesn't answer prayers in the same way. He doesn't gift us the same way. He doesn't show us the same talent or resources. He treats us differently for his own purposes. Because he has a plan." which is the tritest thing in the world to say, and also the truest thing in the world to say. The God of the universe knows what he's doing. And some people wield that willy-nilly in the worst of ways, in the worst of times. It doesn't make it not true. God knows what he's doing. And remember, it's his plan that he is inviting us to be concerned with primarily. His plan is better. If we don't get what we ask for, God often simply uses prayer in our lives to reorient our wills and our desires around His kingdom. That's why He tells us to pray like His Son prayed, Thy will be done. Not my will, but Thy will be done. Which is a reminder for us to pray for His kingdom. To pray for justice. To pray for hope to pray for God's kingdom as it expands, to pray for His church, to pray for RUF. And I think it's appropriate for us to ask also if prayer has no place in our lives, what does that mean? Does that mean that is it possible we have no meaningful relationship with our Maker? I think it's good to ask that question sometimes. And if prayer isn't a part of your life, you know where you can start? With confession. Acknowledging sins in your life, ways that your life is moving in a direction that is not in tune with God's kingdom. And that's all of us. I'm living for my kingdom, God, and I'm sorry. Opening that dialogue because this is one of those prayers that god promises to answer when you pray in faith to jesus to forgive you of your sins he will every time he will draw you to himself he will cleanse you wash you give you a righteousness that is foreign to your own he will always answer that prayer prayer is a regular part of the christian life and you need to know your sin when you ask God to confess or maybe when you when you're confessing your sin to God God's never going to be surprised at what you're confessing you looked at what you told a lie to who you cheated on like God's never going to be surprised he sees everything he knows all things all things he knows you and me better than we know ourselves And He's not only not surprised, He has dealt with our sins by sending Jesus to die for those very sins on a cross. He's not waiting for you to search your heart enough, know your heart enough, and say, is this enough confession? Is this enough prayer to offer to you, to appease you? No. No, I sent my son Jesus to please me for you, to deal with your sins for you and you can pray for confession, and now we've opened up a line of communication. I want you to let me know your desires. And in my perfect will, I will do what I will with your requests. It's only because of Jesus' His life, his death, and resurrection that we can even come to God in prayer. And so know this, prayer is a gift God speaks to us in His Word. We get to speak to Him in prayer. It's a dialogue. We read His Word. We listen to Him. We talk back. Some of that's confession. Some of that's adoration. Some of that is please help Peter in prison. Please help my mom. Please help me make this decision in a way that honors you. What if RUF became known as a place where we prayed with and for each other? And not just after large group and not just Fridays, but when we shared what was going on in our lives with each other, if God grew in us an instinct to say, how can I pray for you? Or if he grew in us an instinct to say, would you please pray for me like now? Like let's 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 pray. And let's not just talk about prayer, let's pray. What if God grew in our community that instinct where we were quicker to pray for each other and for others? Where someone in your lab actually felt the mercy of Jesus through a quick, kind, and non-pompous prayer from you for them? I prayed for the lady that cuts my hair a few months ago and she loved it. She was scared. And I said, can I pray for you? And she said, would you? And I did. And it was quick. And she's excited to see me. I've not prayed for her since. I've not offered since, but she likes me, right? (laughs) What if that became our mojo? if we pray for that instinct that we would be a people to pray for each other i'm inclined to believe that's the kind of prayer that god would delight to answer so let's ask him to help us with prayer as we pray gracious god thank you so much for giving us this passage and thank you so much for giving us this glimpse into the early church who prayed fervently and mightily and with perseverance for you to act and for also showing us that they were so surprised when you did. That's like me. And so we pray that you would help us to trust you with our prayers. Um, Some of us don't know how to pray. Some of us don't have a right relationship with you. And we pray that you might actually begin to soften our hearts with a prayer even now such as this. Would you listen to us? Would you forgive us? Would you continue to work in our midst and through us? For Jesus' sake and your kingdom's sake, amen. Let's sing.